Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science scurry into your brain. I'm Julianne Popple. On this edition, we'll feature the Tassie Devil's Dilemma and the Big Chill. But first up, here's this week's science news. What do gibbons and opera singers have in common? Sounds like a joke, but apparently gibbons use vocal techniques similar to that of professional sopranos. Researchers from the Primate Research Institute at Kyoto University, Japan, studied the singing techniques of the white-handed gibbon at Fukuchiyama City Zoo in northern Kyoto. The intriguing part is that they recorded gibbons singing under both normal atmospheric and helium-enriched atmospheric conditions. Those of us who have experimented with helium will know of its humorous but also dangerous will know of its humorous but also dangerous effect of ranking voices sound high-pitched by shifting the resonant frequencies of the vocal track upwards. Apparently helium is also useful for studying animal vocal mechanisms as it increases sound velocity and resonance frequencies. Comparing Gibbon's calls in normal versus helium-rich atmosphere reveal that Gibbons can manipulate their vocalizations using a so-called source filter mode of speech production, previously thought to be an exclusively human trait. In this type of speech production, sound is produced by the pharynx and then modified by the shape of the supralaryngeal vocal tract. Gibbons are so good at this that it's equivalent to vocal techniques mastered only by professional opera singers. This research challenges previous assumptions about the evolution of speech, indicating that humans share the same fundamental skills of vocalization as other primates. And in a story that has some tooth to it, a new species of rat that is shrew-like and nearly toothless was recently discovered on Sulawesi Island, Indonesia. Poor Sedentomys vermidax, or the few-toothed rat, is the only known species of rodent that has no molars, teeth for grinding, but instead has some incisors, which are teeth for slicing or cutting. The rat preys on earthworms by sucking them up and then slicing them up with the few cutting teeth that it has. This strange animal is quite unique compared to its ever-gnawing cousins, but appears to have evolved to suit the particular environment of Sulawesi Island. Meanwhile in space, the latest news from the Mars Curiosity mission is that the Curiosity rover has cruised on over to the target site where it will start sampling and experimenting using its array of sophisticated instruments. It recently received a software upgrade which seems like no easy feat when your huge, expensive computer is in space. Curiosity runs on Wind River's VXWorks real-time operating system and software upgrades 
are literally beamed to orbiters around Mars using giant antennas in Spain, Australia and California. And then it's beamed over to the rover itself. The mission is expected to last two years, with many adjustments likely along the way. Mars Curiosity Fever has even crept over to the gaming world, with Rovio announcing that a new update to Angry Birds in Space will include new levels where those pesky green piggies will attempt to hijack the Mars rover. Why are we talking about a video game, you say? One, because it's awesome. And two, because as gamers unlock new content, they will learn more about NASA's missions to Mars. And I'm all for learning in a fun way. Tassie Devil is facing an uncertain future with the virulent facial tumour disease devastating populations. Dr. Beata Uivari is a postdoctoral researcher from the University of Sydney who has been looking at the virus's DNA to see if this disease is becoming more or less aggressive. I spoke to her about her latest results. So I've been working with Katy Belov on the Tasmanian devil, and probably you know that the Tasmanian devils are in danger of going extinct due to a transmissible cancer called the Tasmanian devil facial tumor disease, or we just sometimes call it DFTD, just the shortening of the name. And it's a transmissible cancer, which means that it spreads from devils to devil. Mm-hmm. And it's transmitted during biting, so during social interaction, the, the devils bite each other. It's usually the males who bite the females just to show them that they are stronger, and the females will only mate with the strongest males. So as soon as the devils become sexually mature, they they start to mate, and during mating they fight, and during the fight, unfortunately, they bite each other. So the cancer develops on the face of the devils, and as you can imagine, when they bite each other, cancer cells get from one devil to the other devil. So fighting between the male and the female during mating? During mating, or also, sorry, I should say, that during feeding, the Mm. males would bite each other or fight with each other, the females would fight with each other. So unfortunately, because they are quite fast animals, the cancer spreads from devils to devils really easily. And it's a transmissible cancer which is unique in the wild. There is one more other type of transmissible cancer in dogs. But the facial devil facial tumor disease is a recent cancer which appeared. The first pictures were taken in 1996. The, the disease appeared in the northeastern corner of Tasmania. And the first photographs were actually taken by a nature photographer who photographed the devil with this huge cancerous ulcerations on the face of the devils. For for a long, long time they didn't know what was it. They just thought it was an injury or something until they found out that it's actually a transmissible cancer. And the group where I've been working, we have been studying why the tumor is transmitted from one devil to the other, 
One of the interesting thing that the devil's immune system should recognize the foreign cell coming from the other devil. So if you just think about you and me, if I would give you a cell or an organ from my body, your immune system would recognize it that this is not mine, this is non-self, so it would recognize it that it's a foreign body and it would reject it. The interesting thing that the devil's immune system doesn't recognize the cancer cells as foreign, it, the devil's immune system thinks that it's self and accepts it, so that's why the tumor can grow from devil to, to devil and transmit it from devil to devil. So the group where I'm working, we have been studying why the devil's immune system doesn't recognize the cancer cell, and also at the same time we are interested in is the cancer becoming more or less aggressive. So in the cancer, or in the, sorry, in the dog uh, transmissible cancer, that's a much older cancer. It evolved 4,500, 1,500 years ago. We don't know exactly the date when it evolved, mm -hmm. but during that long time of period, the cancer became benign. So it used to be aggressive, it used to kill the dogs, but during that 1,500 or 4,500 years, the tumor started to slow down and it doesn't kill the dogs anymore. So we are interested in, would the devil facial tumor disease slow down and become benign and, won't, and hopefully won't affect the devils as much as it does now, or will it become more aggressive? Do you know where this tumours come from originally? Or when was the first cases detected? So again, the first case was seen in 1996. Mm -hmm. And so it's 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. 16 yeah. years ago. And now we know that it's actually origina originated from a nerve cell, a peripheral nerve cell. And we don't know what happened to that nerve cell and how the tumour started, but using molecular techniques and histochemi histochemistry techniques we know that it's actually a it's called a Schwann cell which became cancerous and started to spread. The bad thing with the cancer that we don't have a diagnostic marker at the moment so the only no way we know that the devils have the tumor is by seeing the tumor or seeing the first lesions and as soon as the first lesions appear within six months, the devils die from the cancer. It's usually due to starvation or due to organ failure. So the, the tumor is a, is a huge mass. It pushes the jaws or the eyes of the devils on. So the devils can't feed, so sometimes they die of starvation. So presumably once the tumor is visible, it's actually quite an advanced yes. stage. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately. So we can't treat the cancer and we can't diagnose it before we see the first lesions. So we don't know actually how long the, the cancer cells have been in the devil's system before we start to see the tumours. Are you working towards finding a marker? Yeah. yeah. So there is a group, uh, there are several groups in Australia working on the disease and then there is a group who is work trying to find a marker and also they are trying to develop a vaccine. So as I mentioned, our group is interested in how the tumor is changing. Is the tumor becoming more or less aggressive? Is the tumor evolving to be more aggressive or slowing down? So we have been looking at different genetic markers to try to understand the behavior of the tumor. And one of these markers are well known in human cancer called telomeres, which are the end of chromosomes. 
So our chromosomes are, and the diverse chromosomes are protected by a repetitive sequence called telomeres. At the end of the chromosomes we have these uh, repetitive sequences. And these repetitive sequences actually protects the chromosomes from sticking together. So during cell division, the chromosome can separate and duplicate without any problem because of the telomere repeats at the end of the chromosomes. But with every cell division in somatic cells, which are skin cells or, or tissue cells, we lose a bit of these telomere repeats from the end of the chromosomes. And after a certain number of cell divisions, it's usually 50 to 100 cell divisions, we lose so many of these repeats of the telomeres that the cells can't divide anymore and they actually become senescent and they die from, from not being able to replicate anymore. So these are normal somatic cells which we all have in our body. However, in cancer cells, these telomere repeats are not diminishing as fast as in normal cells. So cancer cells can proliferate unlimitedly because their telomere lengths are not diminishing as in, as in somatic cells. And it's due to that an enzyme called telomerase is upregulated, it's reactivated. So in somatic cells, we don't have telomerase activity, but in cancer cells, the telomerase enzyme is active, reactivated, and it rebuilds the diminishing telomeres from the end of the chromosomes. So that's what we know about human cancer. So we were interested in the devils, would their telomere length is diminishing or would it be the same as in human cancer? Would their telomerase enzymes be active or would it be silenced? So are you able to gauge how aggressive the cancer is by the amount of enzyme present or something like that? Yeah, so yeah, so we managed to, so we looked at the telomere length of the tumors and we found that actually it's becoming longer and longer over time and it's due to that the telomerase enzyme is more and more active over time, which unfortunately to us means that probably the cells the DFTD cancer cells are more stable and able to proliferate faster. They have more potential to replicate. So unfortunately to, to us, it looks like it's probably the cancer is becoming more aggressive over time. Not good news for the devils then? No, unfortunately not. But we need, as with more research and scientific studies, we need more data and more experiments to do. It would be really interesting to do cell culture studies when we could measure the number of copies, telomere uh, elongation and telomerase activity and expression levels and to see if the cells which have higher telomerase activity are indeed proliferating much faster and, and creating more and more cells in a shorter period of time than cells with lower telomerase expression. So are there any populations of the devils left that have been untouched by the facial tumor disease? Unfortunately, I just saw the map, the latest map from Tasmania. Until a few months ago, they thought that the disease hasn't reached the north-western uh, side of Tasmania. But I just saw the latest uh, distribution map and they already found sick uh, devils on the western part of Tasmania. There is one population where we have some hope 
that the disease might be spreading uh, slower. It's called the West Pennsylvania population, close to Cradle Mountain. But the disease has been in the population for six years now. But we still see adult devils. We see a strong, healthy population. So we are hoping that these devils might have either a different immune system, so they are able to recognize the cancer cells, or the cancer cells which arrived into these populations are behaving differently and probably slowing down. So that's something that we would like to look at in the future, both the cancer cells and the immune system of the devils and see what causes that the disease is not wiping the population out. And is there any talk of uh, either translocation efforts, captivity uh, yeah. breeding programs? So actually what's happened, uh, they have been removing healthy devils from Tasmania and they have been placing them in, uh, on the mainland into zoos and uh, wildlife parks. And they have been trying to breed or maintain a captive bred population of Tasmanian devils. In case the, the devils go extinct in the wild, we are hoping to have a healthy captive rat population from where we could relocate the devils to Tasmania. So at the moment we have 500 devils in the captive rat population across Australia and it looks like the program is doing really well. We, we have been just seeking for fundings to try to sequence the genome of the devils in the captive rat population because we would like to make sure that the captive rat population is healthy and that we could give suggestions for the mating of different devils just to, to maintain uh, genetic diversity. And is there a, a way that people interested in helping save the devils can donate or become involved as a voluntary capacity or anything like that? Yeah, so there are several funding opportunities when people could donate some money. So there is the Save the Tasmanian Devil Foundation and the website is are really easy to find, just uh, type in Save the Tasmanian Devil Foundation. They are the main funding organization who are uh, allocating the funds to both the captive breeding population and also to researchers like our group to do um, scientific research on the devils. So that's probably the best forum, but Taronga Zoo has also um, uh, some captive bred devils. They are always looking for donations, the Australian Reptile Park close to Gosford, they also have a, um, they are also part of the captive breeding population. I've, I've seen their devils up there, they're impressive animals. Yeah, amazing. You know the interesting thing that when you see them in, the, in zoos, they always seem aggressive. They are super smart and in captivity they lose their fear of people, so they are not frightened of people at all. And I've seen them in the wild and they are actually extremely shy, extremely cute animals and they just want to avoid human contact. They don't try to attack people, they don't try to bite, they want to hide and get away from people. When people tell me, oh, they are aggressive, mm. I think, yeah, they are aggressive in, in captivity, but in the wild they are aggressive with each other but they are shy and they are super cute animals. Well, well, I just hope that we can keep these amazing and unique animals alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It would be... I, I'm, I'm not Australian as uh, birth. I was born in Hungary, but I became uh, an Australian and I look upon them that it would be our failure and it would be our shame to let them go extinct, especially when we know that 
there is still time to do something, there is still time to try to save them and we know that they are in danger so if we don't act now then we will lose them and it will be the shame of the country and it will be the shame of us which I don't think should happen. That was Dr Beata Uivari speaking to me about telomeres and Tassie devil tumour disease. If you'd like to find out more about how you can help save the Tassie devil, visit www.tassiedevil.com.au slash tasdevil.nsf That's www.tassiedevil.com.au slash tasdevil.nsf You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. We've all heard of the Big Bang Theory, but latest research shows that the formation of the universe may have been a much more frosty affair. Therese Chen reports. Scientists from the University of Melbourne and the Royal Institute of Technology believe that they have come up with a method to view cracks in the universe which would support our new theory of quantum gravity. If what they believe is true, then how we envision the beginnings of the universe may require revising. The prevailing theory, commonly known as the Big Bang, posits that the universe began from a singularity of dense energy. What then followed was rapid expansion and cooling, which enabled the formation of subatomic particles. Quantum gravity, a model which was first put forward by physicists at Canada's Perimeter Institute in 2006, suggests that, as opposed to being continuous, four-dimensional space-time possesses a lattice structure comprised of discrete space-time units. In this model, the formation of the universe was more like a big chill, a phase change from an amorphous liquid-like structure to one which was solid and crystalline as a consequence of the temperature decrease. This would be analogous to water cooling to ice. In the new study, lead author James Koish and his colleagues say the hypothesis has previously been difficult to test since the aforementioned building blocks are too small to be detected. However, they could be indirectly observed via the cracks or defects which would be present as a consequence of the crystallization. Think of the early universe as being like a liquid, Quaish said in a statement. Then, as the universe cools, it crystallizes into the three spatial and one time dimension that we see today. Theorized this way, as the universe cools, we would expect that cracks should form, similar to the way cracks are formed when water freezes into ice. Light and other particles would bend or reflect off such defects, and therefore, in theory, we should be able to detect these effects, said Andrew Greentree, a professor at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Quaish believes that this model, if supported, would be a more complete model than the Big Bang Theory, which cannot be utilised at the point of singularity. The Big Bang Theory is based upon Einstein's theory of general relativity, which, 
Whilst is able to describe the physics of the very large objects, such as galaxies and planets, it's unable to describe the physics of the very small, that is, atoms and, sub- and subatomic particles, which is where quantum mechanics comes in. Attempts to combine both principles into one cohesive model have resulted in various theories such as string, string theory and M-theory, which suggests that gravity is governed by particles known as gravitons. The research by Quaish and his team has been published in the journal Physical Review D. That was Therese Chen detailing the new theory of the formation of the universe, the Big Chill. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Do you have a science question that's bugging you? Email your science questions and stories to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com and our scientists will do our best to find the answer and feature it on a future episode of Diffusion. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live elsewhere and have a story you would like to contribute, send us an email on diffusion at 2ser.com. For further information on this week's show, visit our blog at www.2ser.com slash shows slash diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Therese Chen. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next time on Diffusion Science Radio. And to cap off this week's show, here's some rocking science music with MJ Hibbert and the Validators with a little bit. They had it easy in the Renaissance. They could invent new branches of science over lunch. But nowadays we work more incrementally No one's naming any new elements after us Cause we'll do a little bit, that's how we do research There's teams all around the world doing these little bits of work Takes a lot of little steps And no, it isn't very glamorous We won't make a world-shattering breakthrough We might find an explanation For gravitic oscillation But I somehow doubt you'll hear it on the news Cos we all do a little bit But it's a little bit 